0: Hi everybody and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F and I'm a recovered overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'm your host for today's study. <laughs> co host today are Sue, L and Audrey N. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts and you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows, that will not be recorded. And we'll post a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function. We are currently on recording number 100. So this week oh. is number 100. Yeah. Oh. Mm. So we ask if you could please keep your microphones on mute at all time during today's study, and also if you need to step away from your video for any reason, please do disconnect the camera. Um, we'll post a link to the previous week's recordings and the 7th edition in the chat function, and we will also stay on the line here for about 15 minutes after the meeting ends, so when Q&A is over, um, we'll, stay, we'll stay back here for about 15 minutes. So now we'll turn over the meeting to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan.
1: Good morning, Maria. Thank you very, very much. And I want to thank you for your service. One hundred recordings. Wow. Just amazing. I'm so pleased and so grateful to all of you for making this possible uh, by coming and attending and giving me the kind of feedback that you've been giving me. Um, I hope that you're getting as much out of this as I am, because I love seeing everybody and so on. We are not going to be meeting next week in this format. I'm gonna be taking my show on the road and we're gonna be going to Los Angeles, California, more specifically Culver City, California. So if you can make it to Culver City, California next Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, we hope that you will attend and we would love to see you. This is the first foray into a live big book study that I will do since I did Sarasota, Florida over two, about two years ago. That was in February or March, excuse me, March of 2020, so it's two years. Wow, I haven't been doing anything. And I just want to tell you how grateful I am again to the people who really got this going this is something that just took a life on by itself. I have a question that I do wanna throw out there for you to ponder. And I do realize that you're here. So it's kind of sort of like the preaching to the choir, but this is the question and don't, you don't have to answer me today, but you can message me, uh, text me, whatever you wanna do. I have something in my head that says, we should make this earlier in the summer because we're down a little bit, we were we were pulling out about 150, 140, 150 per week. And a lot of times in the summer, people, because this is at one o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern time. Do you guys think that we would do better if we rolled it back several hours to say instead of 10 o'clock Pacific time, what do you think if we got started at, say, 8 o'clock a.m. Pacific, which would mean 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, and 9 a.m. Mountain? And I do realize we'd be kind of butting heads with the uh, Cornwall meeting. I do realize that. But let me know what you think because I would like to bring this to the most amount of people possible. And that is something that's rolling around in my head. Okay, that said, let's get started. We are in the chapter more about alcoholism. And we just got it started last week. And we did a lot of good work. And we understand that the original title, the original working title was more truth about alcoholism. But they said, look, we are not experts in alcoholism. And this makes us sound like we think we are experts. And so they changed it or Bill changed it. They didn't, Bill did, to more about alcoholism. And much of this chapter is devoted to the knowledge that we get from a man by the name of Peabody, Richard Peabody. And Richard Peabody wrote a book in 1930. And the book that he wrote in 1930 was called The Common Sense of Drinking. And so important was the common sense of drinking to the formation of this AA Big Book, that Bill Wilson's copy of this book is still in the AA archives as we sit here today on on May the 28th, 2022. That's May the 28th, 2022. Um, So this is going to be the last of the chapters that is going to be devoted to step number one, And in this chapter, we are going to take the most in-depth study of step number one that we can possibly take to prepare us for the rest of the steps as we endeavor forward, as we move forward through the book. Okay, let's go to the bottom of page 30. And we have already said last week, and it it bears reviewing, that most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. What is a real alcoholic? And this is a very good question. And you may think that this is a little basic, but it's not. An alcoholic is a person who has a physical allergy to alcohol. In other words, an allergy being an adverse abnormal reaction to the food, the beverage, or the substance. Adverse means it's harmful. And abnormal means most people do not react the way an alcoholic does. And then it goes on to say that no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. One of the things that I read as a child, and you read it too, is a book. And the name of the book is The Little Engine That Could. We all read that book. Didn't we reread we the book, The Little Engine That Could? And what do we find in that book? We find a little engine that's called upon in a crisis to get the load up the hill for the railroad. And the little engine, he gets attached to it and he sees this hill and he says, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And what we have to do is divorce ourselves entirely from this line of thinking. Because if we believe that we can do this, we will die. I'm going to let that sink in and I'm going to repeat it again. The minute that we think that we can do this on our own, on our willpower, by pushing ourselves away from the table, by pushing ourselves to stick to a food plan, by pushing ourselves in the direction of character and willpower and discipline, we are dead. Because the main thing we need to remember is gonna be said to us in chapter five and four, but in five, it's gonna say, alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful, without help, it is too much for us. I'm going to repeat that without help. It is too much for us. You think you can, but you can't. You think you can, but you can't. And this is very, very important for us to remember. And that little engine that could can kill me. It's a very, very good, um, It's a very, very good book and I enjoyed it as a child, but let's put it away and let's not forget that no, you can't. Let's continue. It says here a little further down the idea that somehow, someday he will control and enjoy his drinking. When I controlled my drinking, meaning I'm going to go to this party and I'm not going to eat a bunch of chazerai. Chazerai is a Yiddish word for crap. I'm not going to eat a bunch of crap. I couldn't enjoy my eating, but when I enjoyed it, I couldn't control it. Why is that? Because once that food was inside of me, I could no more control the amount I was going to eat than I can control the weather in Palmdale, California at the dog park. I just cannot control the weather patterns anywhere in the world. And then it says here, we we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. This is... (laughs) very, very important for us to remember, I am a compulsive overeater. Every day that I'm lucky enough to wake up, I wake up with a disease that demands my attention. And the persistence of the illusion that I'm like other people is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity, excuse me, or death. (laughs) <laughs> Let's go down to the paragraph we're going to start on today. Page 30. We are like men who lost who have lost their legs, they never grow new ones. My mother was uh, a diabetic And my mother uh, was like me. She could not really be reasoned with. And she ate herself into more horrible, horrible diabetes. And at the end of her life, she had to have her leg amputated because gangrene set in. And my mother and I had wounds in our calves where the pus used to run out and the infections used to run in. And my mother got such a horrible infection that she had to have her leg amputated. And I will let you in on something. I don't know what this says about me. I don't think it really says anything. But the the, the sight of the of the leg was harder on me than her death. It was just much harder on me than seeing her pass, because it just meant that this disease was, was serious in its, in its properties to kill. It meant that this disease was serious in its properties of maiming and abusing and just wreaking havoc on the lives of anybody who is unfortunate enough to suffer from this disease. It's a horrible, horrible disease, and I hate it. But the bottom line is I have it and I have one of two choices. I can die with the disease or I can die from the disease. Dying with the disease means I'm in recovery. Dying from the disease means I'm in the food. So we are like men and women who have lost our legs. We never grow new ones. And of course, my mother was never able to grow a new leg and she lost that leg at the very tail end of her life. But it was traumatizing for me, traumatizing for her. And I think it was very, very traumatizing to all of my friends who loved her very much that came with me to see her in the aftermath of that horrid surgery. And um, it was quite, quite unnerving, quite unnerving. We are like men and women who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. We will never be normal eaters. We may eat normally, but we will never be able to say, I am a normal eater. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. Now, one of the things that we lean on in this program is something that will not serve us. And that is because I've been abstinent for a long time, I'm cured. And even though that may sound ridiculous when I'm saying it, I would be willing to bet you that most of us or all of us have relied on that phony baloney information. And a little later on this morning, we're going to start the story of a man who remained bone dry for 25 years and he started drinking again. And within four years, he was dead. So no amount of weight loss, no amount of normal eating treats the disease. I'm gonna say that again. Abstinence does not treat the illness. Abstinence must be in place. Please don't call me later. Please don't attack me later. Please don't send me emails and messages. Please don't call LA and say, he said we don't have to be abstinent. I never said that. What I said was abstinence is only a prerequisite. It is like English 101. I have a college degree, Roosevelt University, Chicago, Illinois. I had to take English 101. Now, when I took English 101, they didn't say to me at the end of English 102, congratulations, you've just graduated our university. They never said anything like that of the kind. What they did say, though, was, hey, if you don't take 101 and 102, you can't get a degree from our school. So abstinence is like English 101 and English 102. Notice I didn't use math as one of the uh, examples. I'm not using math. I'm not talking about math. I had to take college math and I had to get a C in the course or I was in trouble. And so I was strapped, man. I did everything I could and I got a C in that class and I have never been imbued with the spirit of our Lord more than when I got the grades and it said, math, C. And I thought to myself, where can we go? This is, this is the penultimate. This is the ultimate. I, got, I passed math. I never have to take it again. And just a show of hands when we're done, I want you to be thinking, how many of you actually used algebra today in your daily work? I know I did not. I did not use algebra, nor did I use geometry. Okay, but that's for another time. Put a pin in that and we'll revisit that some other time. Now let's go back to the top of page 31. We have tried every imaginable remedy. Ooh, we have tried every imaginable remedy. Now I'm gonna go back to the doctor's opinion. You don't have to flip your pages. You can stay on the page you're on. I'm going to say that what it says here is, um, where is it? Is, I know it's here somewhere. Um, Oh, I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. Why do I assume that the methods you tried, like me, have failed completely? Because if they had worked, you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't see you on our Zoom meeting. And I don't know what it is about me. And I bet you're not that different. For whatever reason, maybe it's because of my crazy ego. Maybe it's because I'm just crazy, period. I don't know. Maybe I'm just stupid. I don't know. But here's me. I had to try every wrong answer in the world ad nauseum before I came to OA, came back to OA after leaving, came back again after leaving until I said, okay, now I'm ready to do business. For whatever reason, my ego said, you can try this. You can try the Uh, butterfinger diet. You can try a cheeseburger and fries diet, whatever that might have been. But I tried them all and I just kept getting fatter and fatter and more miserable and more miserable. Yes. At certain times, temporarily, these things worked beautifully. Diets work until they don't because my brain was screaming out screaming out for sweet relief from the buildup of human emotion. And I was not aware of any of that. But I couldn't take the pain of not eating any longer. And no matter how much food had ransacked my life, it had emasculated me, it had embarrassed me, it had shamed me, it had put me in a position of degradation and shame and ridicule. And it made me hate myself. One of the things about this disease, more than making me fat, more than ransacking my life, this disease fertilized and it fertilized and propagated a self-loathing that I just could not live with any longer. I was married for a very short period of time when we moved out to Eugene, Oregon. And when we first moved to Eugene, Oregon, I think it was the first Saturday night we lived there. First Saturday night we lived in Eugene, we decided, me and my then wife, decided we were going to go to a movie. And I got lost. I I didn't live in this place. And there was no GPS kind of thing at that time. It was 1993. And I didn't have a cell phone yet. I wasn't to get my first cell phone for another year. When my wife got pregnant, I got my first cell phone. And they didn't have anything like that. They were very, very primitive to what you see today in terms of a cell phone. I got lost. And I started berating myself, not my wife, myself. I started calling myself filthy, dirty names. I started pounding on the steering wheel. I was just not happy with me. And my wife touched my arm and said, Harlan, if you talk to your friends the way you talk to yourself, would you have any? And I had to think, no, I would not. Because if I spoke to you the way I would speak to me, you would run away from me and never come back. And I don't want to be an object of ridicule anymore. I don't want to catch a glimpse of myself in a store window and wish I was dead. I don't want to go and do, let alone a mirror, my God, I don't ever want to go do the two most hideous nightmarish activities that a man who is a compulsive overeater can do. The two most hideous activities are buying clothing and going to the doctor. Buying clothing is a nightmarish existence for a fat man. As much as you think that this is your size, after i walk out of that store the last time i am up several sizes since the last time i bought pants since the last time i bought a belt since whatever i bought since the last time i bought that particular kind of garment i am Much bigger than I've ever been. And even at the big and tall, the so-called big and tall stores, got to remember, I grew up in an era where there was no online shopping. If you told me about online, I would think, well, what the heck are you waiting in line to do? I would think, well, the last time I went in line was to see Jaws. When I went to see Jaws at the Golf Mill Theater in Niles, Illinois, we had to wait in a freaking line. Man, you needed a telescope to see the front of the line from the back of the line. And I thought to myself, how in the world are we all gonna get in there? And the truth is we didn't. We had to wait for another showing of it. But I remember waiting in line to see Jaws. Anyway, that aside, see, this is how my Meshuggah when a brain works. Buying clothes was horrible, nightmarish. Oh God, I used to get anxiety attacks just thinking that I needed clothing. Now here's the worst thing that a fat boy can do. And I think it's the same for women. I, I would bet that it is. Going to the doctor, oh my God, the aches and pains and things that I lived with that needed medical attention that I would not go oh my God, the yelling and the screaming. You could have heard these guys yelling for two miles. They used to read me the riot act every time. And I've told you the story. I've told this story in here many times. When I was 17, I broke my ankle in gym class at Mather High School in Chicago. And my mother took me to the doctor. And Dr. Bernstein, he's been dead for a long time. Max Bernstein, he had these glasses, these little granny glasses this is the beginning of the 70s and these little granny glasses were very much in fashion if you've ever seen the Lovin spoonful or the birds or some of these rock groups they're wearing these little granny glasses and he had them and he looked out the top and he yelled at my mother he says Virginia. He is 17 years old and over 300 pounds. How long do you think he's going to live? But when he said, how long do you think he's gonna live? He was screaming at the top of his lungs. The nurses were coming in and closing the door and the nurses were coming in to make sure everybody was okay. And the nurse came in, I remember this redheaded nurse, And she comes in there, Dr. Bernstein, is everything okay? And he puts something down and it was my cat. He was giving me a cast. He says, no, not everything is okay. This young man is 300 pounds and 17 years old. No, nothing is okay in here. And what do you think my mother and I did on the way home? That's right. I've said it before. You remember, that's good. We stopped for ice cream on Devon Avenue. That's how we reacted to being screamed at. So the loathing, the self-hatred is is, is not spoken of a lot. It's not talked about in these rooms very much. But for me, self-loathing was is very much a part of this disease. Now, here's the encouraging part. Every single day, I have an opportunity to do self-esteem building activities, like taking phone calls, answering questions, doing retreats, going to Palmdale, California, to the dog park, going here, going there, doing whatever it is I need to do to help me like myself so that I can tell you today that I am not narcissistic to the point where I want, you know, I'm not, I don't want to marry myself. I don't want to have uh, uh, you know, an affair with myself or whatever. And I'm not even going to talk about that, but what I am going to tell you is I think I'm a pretty decent guy. I think I'm a good person. I don't think I'm better than other people, but I don't think I'm worse than other people. I just think I'm a human being. And one of the things I find myself saying to myself every day is they have a name for people that don't know that. They have a name for people that make that mistake. They have a name for people who do that. And that is human being. I'm a failable, fallible mortal, vulnerable, recovering human being. And that doesn't make me a bad person. It makes me human, which is what I've always wanted to be my entire life. What a gift of this recovery that I don't have to hate myself any longer. Let's continue, top of 31. In some instances, there has been brief recovery. That's what we call dieting, right? We call that dieting. Follow it always, not sometimes, not most of the time, always. Bill Wilson, I believe, was inspired by God. I don't believe for one minute, I love Bill Wilson, you know, on Facebook, that where they have these little uh, things that you read, if you could have lunch or spend an hour with anybody living or dead, just anybody from history, who would you want to spend an hour talking to, without question, there's no one even close I always wanted to spend an hour with Abraham Lincoln for whatever reason. I always thought he was a pretty cool guy. I still do think he's a pretty cool guy. Abraham Lincoln is very interesting to me. Also because the state that I'm from is the land of Lincoln. That's at the bottom of Illinois license plates, the land of Lincoln. But there's somebody I'd rather spend an hour with than anybody, and that is Bill Wilson. Man, would I like to spend an hour just talking to Bill Wilson. Bill, give me the lowdown. What's the story with this guy? What's the story? Whatever happened to the author of this story? I noticed you didn't put it in the second edition. Did he drink? Did he make a pass at Lois? What's the story? Give me me the lowdown, Bill. Tell me me the Emmes. Emmes is a Yiddish word for the truth. So Bill Wilson all the time. But Bill... Did not, I don't believe Bill wrote the book. He had three and a half years of sobriety. He was 43 years old. I have 23 years of sobriety of abstinence. I'm lucky I can knock out a coherent freaking text message. And he wrote one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature that the world had seen for thousands of years. I don't think so. I think he was divinely inspired. And this word always is a key phrase followed always by a still worse relapse. Now let's take a look at that. And I know I'm being real detailed in this chapter but the material demands it. And I know we're going slow, but you're just going to have to bear with me because this is my way of presenting this chapter. Sorry about that. What does that show you if it's followed always by a still worse relapse? That means that the disease is progressive, permanent, progressive, fatal, the disease will never go away. You could have 20,000 years of abstinence. If you pick up food, you will not pick it up from the point that you left it. You will pick it up at a point that is much more deadly and advanced because of the progressive nature of the disease. The disease is permanent. The disease is progressive, the disease is fatal. And these are things that we're gonna be talking about as we travel through this chapter and every story that we read and everything we read in this chapter is going to call us back to the information that Peabody gave us. And by the way, Peabody died in 1936 of his own alcoholism one year after Bob met Bill. What a shame. What a shame. My father would say it's a Shandana Naharpa, which means it's a shame for the world. So it's a shame that here in New York, excuse me, in Akron, Ohio, here was Bill meeting Bob and Peabody was alive, but he didn't know. He didn't have a clue where to get the help. He could have got help but he didn't know it was there. And it's one thing not to get help for our addiction. And the reason that I talk about this is this, it's one thing to die of this disease. It's horrible. My mother died of this disease. The worst part about it is people who die in the disease and please God, it won't be you or me. People who die in the disease knowing darn well that here is the recovery, that there is a place to go, that there is something that can be done, that there is a group of people that understands, that speak and understand the language of the heart. And that there is a proven workable method. And that method is called Overeaters Anonymous. And when we work the steps from the book, we get sweet relief from a disease that is out to kill us. (sighs) How lucky are we to be born in an age where there is a recovery? How lucky are we? I think it's very important once in a while to bow my head and say to God, thank you that I live in an age where there is recovery. How lucky am I? Because if this was 100 years ago, 200 years ago, I would have stumbled along to a miserable death, never ever having lived. We have the power to fly because of the work that was done by men and women before us. How lucky are we? Let's continue. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there's no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. You know, I used to wish for a cure for this, but I will tell you this honestly. I'm going to tell you this from my heart. I have been around these rooms for 43 years I have seen thousands of people come and go and come and go, and some of them are still here. There is a lady, I don't know if she's here now. I, I can't sit and start looking through here to see who's here and who's not here. I can't. I have to think about what I'm saying and I have to look at the time and try to pace myself. And it would look ridiculous if I'm sitting here talking to you, scrolling through here. She was at my first meeting that I ever went to back in February of 1979. And she was one of two ladies that brought OA to Chicago several years before. And where was I going with this? Oh, I know where I was going. I used to pray that one day they would cure this. And when I was on diet pills, when I was nine years old, I thought for a short period of time because that's what the doctor told me and my mother that this would cure me, that this would stop the desire for food. And he was right, it did. Those heavy amphetamines killed my appetite, but they almost, almost killed me because your body needs sleep. Your body needs sleep. It needs rest. And when you're on heavy amphetamines, you cannot rest yourself. You can't rest your mind. You can't rest your body. And you're susceptible as I was every cold, every flu, every bacteria, every virus. I, I couldn't, I slept about 20 minutes a month on that stuff. I lost weight, but oh my God, it's a terrible, horrible way to live. And and when Marilyn Monroe died, they switched me from one pill to another, but it was exactly the same result. I hope, I I tell you this with a pure heart. If I had a pill, I'm going to take my little bar of soap here. If this was a pill that you could take to cure you of this, I wouldn't give it to you. I would throw it in the trash. And I'll tell you why. It's not because I don't love you. It's not because I don't respect you. It's not because I don't wanna help you. I want you to know the joy, the euphoria, the camaraderie, the love of this program. Oh, the places you'll go. Oh, the people that you'll meet. I'm going to Los Angeles this week. I'm gonna be there. From the first to the fifth, and I'm going to have contact with people. I'm going to have, I'm going to have a, a coffee time uh, when uh, the second day I'm there, and I'm going to have. I'm going to go to a Dodgers game, and we're going to do the thing, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. It's going to be fabulous, but. I wouldn't have to do that if I didn't have this disease. All the places you'll go and the things that you'll experience that will help you love yourself and help you love your fellow human being. The fact that you can work this program and not only be absent of that self-loathing, but be abstinent after time of the judgmentalness, the intolerance, the anger, the fear of other people. You see, I've always been able to talk to all of you, but I always had a lot of trouble talking to just one of you, particularly if you're female and I find that you're reasonably attractive. It was extremely difficult for me to talk to any of you one-on-one. Now I can kind of do it. I still struggle a little bit with the ladies, but I can talk to people. I have a certain amount of social anxiety. I guess I always will. But the bottom line is, and I still want things to go according to my script and I want what I want. Oh my God, I still have an ego for crying out loud. But now I recognize what's happening. I lean into God and the rest is a cinch. So I don't want to see this thing cured. What I'd like to see is more people in recovery because that is sweeter and better than a cure. It is sweeter and better than anything I ever could have imagined. You will learn more about yourself and learn more about how you fit into this planet than you ever could have learned had there been a cure for this so that one day, I hope one day you will be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm glad for all the pain that I endured. And my pain was massive, massive pain. I won't inventory it for you here. I won't recount it for you here. It's been done enough and I'm tired of hearing myself talk about it and we don't have that much time. But I'm assuming that when you came to this room, not tonight, not today, but any room of OA, you didn't come because things went well for you. You came because of immense, horrible pain and horrible loneliness and horrible self-loathing and doubt. And you had no will to live no will to live, you couldn't live with the food, you couldn't live without the food, you saw no way out, and maybe, just maybe, this pain that you're feeling will help save countless lives of the still suffering, because your pain will become your greatest asset, and you can use your pain to serve your God and to elevate the lives of countless sufferers. That is the gift that this program brings, that no pill, no potion, no operation, no altering of your brain or body will ever be able to compete with. Let's move on, page 31 despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in that class. I get this question all the time. Harlan, do you think I'm a compulsive overeater? I don't know. This is a self-diagnosing disease. If when certain foods enter your mouth, you cannot stop. Or if when you are stopped, you cannot stay stopped you are a compulsive overeater. If I took certain foods away from you, would you try to negotiate them? Would you try to talk me into letting you continue to eat them? That's a pretty good indication you have a problem. Normal eaters just don't do that. Let's go on. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule. And one of the things we've talked about in here many times is my ego. And what does my ego tell me? My ego never allows me to look at you. My ego will not allow me to look you in the eye. My ego will tell me I am either better than you or I am worse than you. You are either, hold on one second. You are either better than me or I am better than you. And the ego has three jobs, make me right, make me feel good right now, and make me different from everybody else. And so I can now look you in the eye. Remember in step five, it says, we can look the world in the eye. The great emancipators, step five and nine five and nine. When we do five and we do nine on a regular basis, we feel very human. We like ourselves more. We don't feel the guilt, the shame, the remorse of the things we've done, the self-loathing. I've been talking a lot about self-loathing today, and I want to just tell you that this is something that is for me. I don't know about you, I don't have a clue, but I've been listening to you guys for 43 years. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think it is as much a part of my disease as anything else, the self-hatred. And for today, I've been liberated for that. Now, of course, no girl has turned me down for a date today or no girl has told me, buzz off Tubby, or anything like that but I'm kidding. But the bottom line is, is that the self-loathing for me is a definite, definite part of this disease. Let's continue. If anyone who is showing inability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we've tried hard enough and long enough to drink Like other people? And haven't we tried long enough and hard enough to eat like other people? I never really wanted to eat like other people. It seemed to me that they didn't eat very much. What I wanted was not to eat like other people necessarily. I wanted to eat the way I wanted to eat, but I didn't want any consequences. I wanted McDonald's French fries, Doritos, Rolos, chunky bars. Butterfinger bars to be given to me in tremendous abundance, but I would not put on any weight. It would not make me smell from the farting and the crapping. It would not make me piss in my pants, nor would it give me any off-putting qualities to the female gender. But that is not possible. When I eat that kind of food to excess, I am going to put, even if I eat it reasonably, I'm going to put on weight. Butterfinger bars, chunky bars, cupcakes are not part of a nutritious food plan. They're just not. Let's continue. Here are some of the methods we've tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks never drinking alone never drinking in the morning drinking only at home never having it in the house never drinking during business hours drinking only at parties switching from scotch to brandy drinking on drinking only natural wines <clears throat> Agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever with and without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums, we could increase the list ad infinitum. Going gluten free, going kosher, going vegan, going vegetarian, going no dairy, going whatever, going this, going that. We all going kosher. We all tried various different methods of hitting on the food plan when the food was not the problem. Compulsive eating and being a compulsive overeater sound very similar but they're worlds apart. Normal everyday eaters, and I'm gonna talk about one in just a minute. They eat compulsively from time to time, but it does not seem that they have to pay a hefty price because they can put it in their pocket and be done with it. I have a friend of mine that lives in Chicago. His name is Corey. And Corey can go to a, now I live right along restaurant row, and Scottsdale. I live in Scottsdale. And in Scottsdale, Arizona, the number one industry is tourism. We depend on tourism to make this city go. And every freaking hotel up and down Scottsdale Road, and I live right here, two blocks from it, has buffet lunch, buffet dinner, buffet breakfast, this dinner, that dinner, this and that. And there are more restaurants within a spitting distance of my house than you could shake a stick at. And he could go to a buffet, my friend Corey, he could go to a buffet and stay with me the entire time. He is a big eater. Here's the difference. It's Saturday. He won't think about eating until Monday or Tuesday. He's had a huge buffet, breakfast, brunch. It's it's uh, quarter to 11, brunch. He's had a huge brunch on Saturday. He isn't going to think about eating till Monday or Tuesday. I'm going to be eating on the way home. I had the buffet. Now I'm going to stop at the convenience store for candy. Now I'm going to stop at another convenience store for Doritos or potato chips or Fritos or whatever. I'm going to continue going and I'm going to eat dinner tonight and I'm going to eat breakfast tomorrow. I'm going to see the difference. He can compulsively overeat, but I am a compulsive overeater. And when my friend Corey wants to regulate his intake of food, he simply clamps down on self-discipline and doesn't allow himself eating any food for a couple of days He might have a little orange juice tomorrow morning. Maybe, maybe a biscuit or a muff. Maybe that's it for the day. He's done. He can clamp down on that through willpower. I can't. I can't. Let's continue. And I'm not not wait before we continue. I'm not knocking veganism. I'm not knocking vegetarianism or gluten free or 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 whatever. I'm not knocking any of these things. And I want to be very clear. I have no opinion on these things. I don't care. The reason that I'm mentioning them is so many times people think Oh, I'm going to go vegan, or I'm going to go kosher, or I'm going to go health food. There are things in health food places that could pump your weight up like there's no tomorrow. I'm kidding myself if I think that that's going to be an answer to my problem. It's not. It's not an answer to my problem. Maybe an answer for yours, not an answer to mine. Now, I'm not knocking that. I don't have, I'm just illustrating a point. So don't get your nose out of joint and say, well, I'm orthodox and I have to be kosher. That's great. God bless you. Nemka hate. But the bottom line is that's not a cure for compulsive overeating. Compulsive overeating is a different phenomenon and compulsive overeating is an illness which only a spiritual awakening will remedy. Let's continue. Bottom of 31. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can easily diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. I never really had doubt that I was a compulsive overeater. I had doubt about you. I looked at you and I said, wait a minute, look at how thin you are. Look at how successful you are. I'm not so sure you're a compulsive overeater. I'm not so sure this is really someplace you belong. And I am not in the business of judging you. I'm not in the business of of diagnosing you the only one that I can diagnose is me. And when it comes to me, when I heard that the disease had a physical allergy, that when I ate certain foods, I couldn't stop. And when I saw the mental twist described in the doctor's opinion, and I came in at about 500 pounds, it occurred to me, you know what? This may be you. Yeah, it may be you. So the bottom line is, is that it never occurred to me that I wasn't a compulsive overeater, but in my tempestuous urge to judge you, I doubted sometimes whether you were or not until I heard your stories. Very famous Thursday night meeting. I came in with an ego that was as big as all outdoors. It was a Thursday night and the speaker was Della, Della F from Chicago. And Della got up there to speak. There was maybe 150 people in the room that night at Swedish Covenant Hospital in Chicago. We used to have big meetings. The reason being, we had the Parkside Treatment Center. They used to bring busloads of people to the meeting. And we had Rader Institute. Rader, Dr. Rader wrote the appendix to the Brown Book of OA. And the Rader Institute used to bring people and Parkside used to bring people. I still use a... A form of a Parkside food plan. And what I use from Parkside still reigns true. They said eat foods as close to their natural form as is humanly possible. And they would say the more things that are done to a food, the more you can have it if you want to stay abstinent. And I still believe that to this day that for me, that is the when I eat an egg, I eat an egg. When I eat chicken, I eat chicken. When I eat Beef for fish, I eat beef or fish. I don't eat anything processed or, you know, anything like that. I just don't do that. And that's for me. That's great. Anyway, where was I going with this? Oh, Della gets up there and she's got the jewelry and she's got the necklaces and the bracelets and she's driving a, Della used to drive a Cadillac, big Cadillac. And she'd pull up to that parking lot in her brand new caddy and get out. And she looked just like a little queen. She was just like a little queen. And she'd go upstairs to the Thursday night meeting. And she was great. She was awesome. She sponsored me for a while. She was was great. She was awesome. Well, anyway, she gets up there and I'm thinking to myself, now, what is this lady going to freaking say? She told my story. She knocked my boots off, my socks off. She knocked me down because I believed that the way I thought about food and the way I thought about life were unique and secret unto me. And here was this lady. What did I have in common with her? Nothing. Nothing. We both lived on the north side of Chicago. That's where the similarities ended. She had two little kids, those little kids now have families of their own. She had two little kids and she had a husband and she drove a Cadillac and this, but with the way she talked about the money and the way she talked about food, she was telling my story. And an avalanche occurred that night. And the avalanche was the block of the rocks between me and everyone else. Now I could embrace, not physically, but I could embrace you and say, yes, you don't have to be north of 400 pounds to be a compulsive overeater. You don't have to be north of 400 pounds. I also had another person on Thursday night that spoke that really knocked my socks off too. And she's dead now. Her name was Janet. And she talked about weighing 87 pounds. And she talked about not eating at all. And she talked about getting a high from restricting the amount of food that she took in. And she talked about years of abuse to her body and brain and that she had to undergo esophageal surgery because she had vomited so many times voluntarily that her esophagus was ripped to shreds. And she talked about being scared to eat food. She talked about fear of food. And when she first said it, I said, may I be struck with this and may I never recover. But by the end of her lead, I understood how stupid that is to say or think. And her pain, her story let me know that although she will never reach the weights I reached, that her obsession with food, her self involvement with herself, not herself, her obsession with food, her constant vigilance, her constant, unbelievable thinking of food was ransacking her life. And I understood that the disease has an ugly, nightmarish, horrible other side to the coin. And in the early eighties, there was a movement within OA to get the anorexics and bulimics out. This was a program for people who eat compulsively and anorexics don't eat compulsively. I found out number one, yes, they do. Number two, I found out we need them in these rooms or we will die. I found out that any movement to that end is horrible. To this day, there was a group, it started in San Diego, California, Anorexics and Bulimics Anonymous. I wish them well, but I wish that they would come in and fly under our flag, because we need them and we want them in our rooms so we can learn from them and love them and let them love us and learn from us that this disease, unlike some other addictions, has several different sides to it. One is the compulsive overeater uh, uh, obese side, and one is the just as dangerous, if not more so side of the restrictor, the anorexic and the bulimic. So we hope that never again in our history will there ever be a time ever where we say to a group of us, you need go somewhere else i hope that that is the last time that that thought is ever entertained i hope so because we need you and we we want you in our rooms though there's no way of proving a top of 32 we believe that early in our drinking careers most of us could have stopped drinking i don't i don't uh, believe that about myself i was gone By the time I had language, I was gone by the time I was an infant in diapers, gone. Maybe some of you could have stopped. I hear people tell stories all the time. They were 10, they were 20, they were 30, they were 40. And all of a sudden, I have a friend that lives in the Bay Area of California And he's a wonderful person. I was the best man at his wedding. He was the best man at my wedding. We're good friends. He weighs about 400 pounds. Up until the time he was about 30, 35 years of age, you would never really look at him and know that there was a problem. He looked very, very normal. All of a sudden he gets to be about 40 years of age, 35, 40 years of age. Now, today he weighs about 400 pounds. He can barely walk, he can barely move and he will not come in the rooms. What a horrible umglic this disease is. An umglic is, technically it means bad luck, but an umglic is a curse. It's a Yiddish word for a curse. But the, difficult, but the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while there is yet time. We have heard of a few instances where people who showed definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. Here is one. We're going to stop because I don't want to start a man of 30 with one minute left on the clock. I want to start a man of 30 when we come back here in two weeks on June 11th. I beg you, if you can get to Los Angeles, please get to Los Angeles. We're going to have some fun. We're going to laugh together. We're going to cry together. We're going to do some good work. So if you can get there, get there. I'm going to turn it back.